can't vote for Biden. Like, I'd vote for Trump before I'd vote for Biden. And the reason being is so, like, you knew this. You knew he was deteriorating. Forget about his yeah. policies when he was lucid. Like, yeah. Forget about, like, he was lucid during the Obama administration. You barely heard from him. Yeah, he was much, much better. Much uh, if better. you listen to, like, a speech he gave in 2012 or 2013, he has lost several steps. See, regardless of what you think about his policies, like, as a human that's in a position of extreme stress and power. Yeah. That is nuts. That's but nuts. It's, that's it's, nuts. It's really unbelievable. That's insane. He's I, so far gone. That was podcast giant Joe Rogan commenting on President Joe Biden's mental and physical stamina during an interview with guest Dave Smith. So, yeah, that was interesting because famously, Joe Rogan is not a fan of Trump at all. You know, he's he's declined. He said that he's specifically declined to have Trump on his show because he did not want to be construed as having done anything to help Trump get elected. Um, he supported uh, Bernie Sanders in at least one of the previous two cycles. So, uh, you know, it's, it's telling there that he says that he would sooner vote for Trump than he would vote for uh, Biden. Of course, you don't have to vote for either is what I would as someone who proudly did not vote for Trump or Biden either time and looks forward to not voting for Trump or Biden uh, in the future again. Uh, and actually, Dave Smith, who was the guest there, is, uh, is a libertarian. Uh, he's somewhat involved with the Libertarian Party. He's a podcaster, comedian. I know him a little bit. Um, we've been on uh, panels together on Fox and some other places. We have some back and forth um, on, on social media. Sometimes we have, I think, different ideas about what is you know the right approach for spreading our views, but probably most of our the views themselves are probably mostly the same between us. So, uh, and I, I didn't watch that whole thing, but I'm, I'm sure Dave eventually jumped in with a, you know, you don't have to. He should have at least. I, I, I trust that he did. With a, you know, there are alternatives to uh, to those two choices. There is a libertarian. There's going to be a libertarian party candidate. There's going to be a green party candidate, and you know some others. And uh, and uh, bad. The the two party duopoly can continues to serve us choices that I think are bad and so many people think are bad and Joe Rogan evidently evidently thinks are, are bad. Are they are they bad, Bacha? Is it that bad? <laughs> um, first of all, I'm glad you brought up that he refused to have Trump on. What a baller move. I mean, I just, I can't get past that. And also, he didn't like immediately brag about it. It came up in a totally different context like years later. Like, I just think that's that's what fu money looks like. It's like yeah. I can just say yeah. I'm not going to give this person a platform because I don't need to. I think that's so cool that he did that. I I do disagree with him. Um, I I, uh, I not that I think Joe Biden is a great choice. I don't know that I'll be able to vote for him, but it's not because of this mental acuity thing. I mean, yeah, he has deteriorated. If you even watch videos of him during the campaign two years ago, he was in much better shape verbally. But I just don't think that there's been a mental deterioration to you know the uh, unless that's the reason that things are not getting done. But I think a lot of the choices that are being made are exactly the same choices he would have made five years ago, 10 years ago. So I, you know, I, I just the, the thing of sliding into appeasing the far left that that just seems to me like, you know, the kind of decisions that a lot of Democrats of all ages make. Um, I will say that over Rosh Hashanah dinner, I had a lot of people over and um, somebody raised the question of if you had to choose between voting for Donald Trump and Kamala Harris, who would you vote for? And boy, was that a polarizing and interesting question mm. because it was like, you know, whatever you think about him. And, and I think that um, actually Joe Rogan does go on to talk about Kamala Harris there and, and how, it, you know, it's so interesting because she's become such a cipher um, you know, they'll put her up there and, the, you know, that kind of word salad will come out and you'll be like, what 
where are you at on any issues? It's so hard to tell. Um, so that was a really interesting uh, thought experiment Very for viewers to try at home. <laughs> yeah, she she doesn't really represent. I don't I don't know what her ideas are. She you know for a while it was it was she was a she was a prosecutor. She was bra uh, uh, she would brag. She was glad uh, to present herself in that way. And then now, of course, that's totally out of step with what sort of the, you know, the, the, with, with how the media, the elite media wants Democrats to position themselves. So she's run totally in the other direction. She's supposed to be in charge of immigration of the border. But, you know, that is not a problem that looks like it's being resolved. In fact, it looks like it's gotten, uh, it's gotten much worse. So I, I think there, there are a lot of ways in which she will, by default, be Biden's successor because, you know, in our very modern political system, being the being the vice president um, is a big deal. It confers a lot of legitimacy and, and frankly, name recognition on you. I, I think it's why uh, why Joe Biden actually kind of easily got the nomination, uh, despite, you know, so many so much media, so much pundits say, well, he did. But he did terribly in the debates. You know, all these other candidates are so exciting. But no, like actual Americans knew who he was and, you know, weren't paying so close to the minutia of politics day in and day out. Like, oh, yeah, Joe Biden, I know who that is. And so it's, he ends up having a, a lot of uh, a, an easier time of it for that reason. So you could see the same thing happening to Kamala Harris, although I don't think she has, I, I mean, she's not well liked, I think, in the same way that, that Joe Biden was you know, broadly kind of in a, I don't know, congenial sense of, approved of. It was someone that I think Americans felt like they knew and also comes across. And look, you have to give him you know, credit for what, what he does successfully politically, or at least used to. I, I think he came across as sincerely um, um, you know, someone who'd experienced loss and, and, and spoke in a, in a, at a time when we were all experiencing tremendous loss, spoke in a way that was reassuring and that he, he understood it and and was you know offering some kind of return to normalcy both in terms of the pandemic and in terms of you know how angry and bitter our politics became uh, partly because of Trump and under Trump but not entirely because of Trump and under Trump uh, and then now that has not that has not really happened at all we had to the Democrats had to be fought on pandemic stuff to make them give it up and then you know our, our politics are just as acrimonious um, as, as they were before. Not that we want to excuse, definitely don't want to excuse Donald Trump. I mean, like he said over the weekend, I think on Truth Social, he made, he made a kind of racist attack on Elaine Chao, Mitch McConnell's wife, um, uh, say, you know, saying that she was, uh, uh, was responsible for all of Mitch McConnell's bad decision making. Like, not only should you not do that, like she was in his cabinet. <laughs> he made her, he put her in the cabinet. So like Trump is always saying, all these people are terrible, all of them are bad, like, but you put them in their positions. What, at what point does that reflect on your judgment then? If, if you're saying everyone is bad, but like you're, it's so, it's just, so, it's never, and for, and this is a problem with some, a certain subset of conservative voices that Trump can just be forgiven for, for anything. It's never his fault. Always somebody else's. Oh, they're not really doing what he wanted. He can't get his way. Everyone's conspired against him. Very whiny, very whiny in my view. Yeah, I mean, I think separating out the person Trump from the policies is exact, 
you know, is exactly what I'm saying about Biden. Like, it's very hard for me to imagine, like, which of the policies that he has enacted do you think he wouldn't have enacted five years ago when he was, you know, more, you know, verbally, you know, uh, mm-hmm. uh, articulate, right? Which of these policies do you think, you know, you could never imagine President Obama enacting these? Like, none of them, right? He's 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 reigning exactly the way if you had predicted, you know, two years ago he would, he would. So I think, you know, and, and, and similarly with, with Trump, I mean, for so many of his supporters, and we've talked about this a lot here, um, it wasn't about Trump the man, you know, they totally didn't care what he was tweeting, they totally didn't care what came out of his mouth, it was about the policies, which were many of which were working very well yeah. for the people who most needed it. So I think it's, you know, it's going to be, it's very interesting times to be an yeah. American. Well, I, cha- I challenge <laughs> them to prove it. They can pick someone who has the same policies as Donald Trump, yeah. but isn't literally Donald Trump. I think that would go a long way to, uh, to bearing that theory out. But uh, all right, well, that's it for us today. Tomorrow on Rising, we will actually have a debate panel on climate change and natural disasters, which Brianna and I have been disagreeing with. So we'll have some actual experts to weigh in on it. Uh, of course, it's been lovely having you today, Bacha. <laughs> and we'll miss you until, uh, until you're back. Thank you so much. See you in a few weeks. And we'll be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Catch us on the Plex TV app and elsewhere. And I will see you all back tomorrow. Bacha will be back with us again. I think you're just off next week, but we're not, you're not going weeks. anywhere. Right. You'll be back, and uh, I'll have more Rising for you tomorrow. And I'll be watching. What's on your radar, Robbie? Well, this is a fun one, Bacha. So Maitland Jones Jr. was a professor of chemistry at Princeton University. In 2007, he semi-retired and began teaching organic chemistry at New York University on an adjunct basis. Not anymore, though. NYU has fired Jones after students circulated a petition protesting that his class was too hard. But according to Jones, the students weren't putting in enough effort and had become disengaged, anxious, and indolent as a result of the COVID pandemic. Quote, they weren't coming to class, that's for sure, said Jones. They weren't watching the videos, and they weren't able to answer the questions. Now, Jones is profiled in a recent New York Times article that chronicles his firing. The piece also raises uncomfortable questions about elite institutions of higher learning and their utter devotion to appeasing unreasonable student demands. Organic chemistry is the bane of medical students everywhere. If you know anyone who went through medical school, they will tell you that. It's a bane precisely because it's such a hard class. But many doctors would argue that's the point. The class is designed to act as an effective gatekeeper, preventing underqualified students from entering the field of medicine. This article made my skin crawl, tweeted Alice Dreger, who's a bioethicist, a historian, and a former professor of medical humanities. We aren't going to end up with good doctors by letting undergrad pre-meds pass organic chem because universities want to protect their U.S. news rankings. So according to the New York Times, 82 of Jones' 350 students signed the petition last spring. It alleged that too many of them were failing and that this was unacceptable. The students cited emotional and mental health complaints to make the case that Jones ought to make the class less difficult. We urge you to realize that a class with, class with such a high percentage of withdrawals and low grades has failed to make students' learning and well-being a priority and reflects poorly on the chemistry department as well as the institution as a whole. That was according to the petition. Uh, 
Now, the Times article suggests that throughout the pandemic, Jones made a number of accommodations, actually, for struggling students. He reduced the difficulty of his exams, but students were still failing them. Students were misreading exam questions at an astonishing rate, Jones told the Times. The article does note that the petition never actually called for Jones to be fired. The university did that of its own volition, evidently deciding that the best way to resolve the situation was to cut him loose entirely. His departure is, in my view, a loss, certainly, for NYU's academic caliber. After all, Jones is a lion in the field of organic chemistry. He published 225 papers in his 40-year career. He literally wrote the textbook, Organic Chemistry, which weighs in at a whopping 1,300 pages. Quote, learning to teach during a time when the goal was to teach at a very high and rigorous level. Paramjit Arora, a professor of chemistry at NYU and former colleague of Jones, described his teaching method. We hope that students will see that putting them through that rigor is doing them good. Well, NYU clearly feels differently about the matter. NYU had uh, Professor Maitland, Professor Jones, a faculty member with a one-year appointment specifically to teach organic chemistry. That was according to John Beckman, who's a spokesperson for NYU, who I reached out to for a statement. And Beckman says, in one of his organic chemistry classes in the spring of 2022, there were, among other troubling indicators, a very high rate of student withdrawals, a student petition, of course, and course evaluation scores that were by far the worst, not only among members of the chemistry department, but among all the university's undergraduate science courses. Multiple student complaints about his dismissiveness, unresponsiveness, condescension, opacity about grading, etc. Beckman also said, so what exactly would be the argument for renewal of this appointment? NYU has lots of hard courses and lots of tough graders among the faculty. They don't end up with outcomes like this. Surely among the many things a university should stand up for, including academic freedom, academic rigor, and a robust research enterprise, one of them should be good teaching. Good teaching shouldn't be pitted against rigor as an excuse for poor teaching. Good teaching and rigor are perfectly compatible, and the latter is not a threat to the former at NYU. Again, that was according to the spokesperson. But look, the question isn't whether students deserve good teachers. Of course they do. But whether good teachers should feel compelled to pass students who fail to demonstrate mastery of an extraordinarily important and complex subject matter. Celebrated organic chemistry professor Maitland Jones Jr. had high standards, and we can't have that in 2022, writes the leftist author and teacher Freddie DeBoer. NYU students, who are by any rational measure some of the most privileged people on planet Earth, organized a petition and got him fired. I hope you never get treated by one of the doctors who emerges from this mess. End quote. So I wanted to highlight this incident, Bacha, uh, which the New York Times, you know, summarized very, uh, very wonderfully. And it's a, a great article for Bill to read. And I saw, you know, everybody kind of talking about it on social media. And look, I, I, I get that organic chemistry is a nightmare. I, I, you know, I have friends who became doctors, et cetera, who took the class, who described it as extremely difficult. But we're getting into this place where, you know, they're describing kind of their trauma at having had to experience a difficult class. Um, and, and that's not, like, if you're not cut out for it, you're not cut out for it. Part of it is to determine, like, I wouldn't be cut out for it. This is, I, I could never pass organic chemistry. I, wouldn't, I, could, I could not go on to become a doctor. I was not good at science and math. I'm a you know, liberal arts person over here. So, uh, so take that for what it's worth. But it, it, it's difficult on purpose because that's what you need to become a doctor and and to have them you know demand all these accommodations and then the university 
absolutely wants to fulfill what the students are asking for. No, you know, no respect for that this man has been an effective teacher for like half a century. They want to give in and give these students exactly what they want. And we've seen that happen. In so time and time again, it actually even in situations more outrageous than this one, over and over again, university administrators bending over backward to make their students happy, even if their students are being completely unreasonable. And it's it's becoming a problem not just in higher education, but like in the rest of society, because then students who were educated under that paradigm enter, quote unquote, the real world, and they demand, they, they expect that same level of accommodation, which doesn't work when you, if, you're, if you're employed by you know, a, a company or, or in, in law or in medicine, et cetera, or in media. And, and we, that's where primarily probably you and I deal with uh, what, are, what are really <laughs> outrageous sometimes uh, you know, demands for, for mental wellness accommodation. So all that is true. And yet, <laughs> I do think that a lot of these fields have pretty random gatekeeping functions assigned to them in the form of extremely difficult classes that you don't really need in the profession. So I a little bit, I, I mean, you're totally right. These kids sound just awful. <laughs> and you're totally right that universities like NYU have become essentially just, uh, you know, expensive, uh, you know, like high class product consumer uh, products for the wealthy and that they're just catering to their clientele, et cetera, et cetera. That's all totally true. It's also true that like most doctors are not going to need organic chemistry and that a lot of people who would be amazing doctors could not pass organic chemistry. And so there's a part of me that also feels that, um, you know, a lot of things that are very important to being a doctor, there's no test for, you know, like listening skills and things like that, that we just, mm. so I know this sounds like a totally woke position, but I can't help but feel a little bit like, you know, we gatekeep for certain things and it's sort of acknowledged in the field that they're, you're gatekeeping so that we don't have too many doctors, right? Which is like, okay, fine. Yeah, we shouldn't have too many doctors. But of course, in the humanities, nobody cares about overproduction of elites. But, you know, so yeah, I could, I, we could say we need a way to, to, to determine who gets to be a doctor who doesn't. And some of what's being done there is like really gross, like the, the outward discrimination against Asians, just absolutely disgusting, you know? But but at the same time, I also feel like I'm not sure that the gatekeeping apparatus, which is set up around things like organic chemistry, is necessarily always the I mean, of course, some people need organic chemistry if you're an oncologist, maybe. But if you're a gynecologist, you really need to have passed organic chemistry to be a good gynecologist. I'm just not I'm not sold on that. Hmm. Well, excellent. Uh, thank you so much for a <laughs> counter perspective. This is why we love having you on. I, sometimes I have no idea how you will re re react to similar. Well, no, I appreciate what you're saying because I have, I, I also think gatekeeping is excessive in a lot of other, um, a lot of other context. I think Brianna and I had a heated disagreement on the show like two weeks or so ago when, uh, when actually when she was saying, well, don't, you know, don't doctors need to go to medical school, which I agreed with. But I was saying that I didn't think, for instance, daycare workers in DC, they're trying to require 
daycare workers to have education degrees, which I think is insane. Um, right? It prevent it actually prevents like low-income immigrant people from getting jobs in D.C. Um, so I, I generally against gatekeeping. This seems to me to be one instance where you do want to filter out people a little bit, but uh, maybe it could be made easier. But then the other thing, though, is. Uh, is showing, and look, I, I feel for students who, who went through the pandemic, but they're describing how just like utterly, utterly uh, difficult it was to learn anything through remote learning. And I think that's important to keep in mind that even at the elite college level, remote learning for a lot of people was a farce and just left them totally unprepared um, for, for what was to come. But uh, well, we have to leave it there, but we'll have more rising after this. Well, progressives are looking for a new generation of fresh young leaders, according to The Hill. Two key national progressive faces, Senator Bernie Sanders and Senator Elizabeth Warren, are not in this grouping anymore, and they may want a blank slate in 2024. The Hill's senior political correspondent, Hannah Trudeau, joins us now to tell us more. Hannah, nice to see you. Nice to see you, too. So this is an issue that we've discussed a lot on the show. I think it's of significant interest to our audience, you know, where the progressive movement is headed in terms of national representation, a national spokesperson, um, you know, Bernie and Elizabeth Warren still obviously still in the Senate, but, you know, getting getting up there in age questions about, you know, whether either of them would run for president again. I think some people have turned toward uh, AOC as a, you know, the new kind of democratic socialist um, icon in the squad. Uh, how, help us, you know, make sense of where all of these things fit in. Yeah, for sure. I mean, Senators Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren are both, like you said, they're still in the Senate. They're still doing their day jobs, but they're getting up there in age. Uh, Sanders is 81 and Warren is 73. And while you know, Biden himself is is up there in age. These these two uh, potential candidates for 2024 are not necessarily what a lot of people want. They want a generational change in leadership, but notably progressives want somebody that has that strong liberal uh, streak to them. And so the Sanders faction is obviously a national grassroots movement that's still alive and well uh, in a lot of pockets of the country. And many folks who were inspired by his bids want to see him take a third stab at it. Um, Elizabeth Warren, you know, had a sizable group of supporters, namely college educated folks, uh, a lot of women, um, but failed to get that sort of national traction in the same way, at least at the ballot box that Sanders did. And so there are natural questions kind of starting now, weeks before even the midterms about who could be the next generation to take up that progressive mantle, not just somebody who's young and who's a Democrat and who's considered a rising star broadly, but somebody who is committed to, if not necessarily the Sanders wing, but something in between the Sanders and Warren wing. Um, a lot of folks in the hardcore left, obviously, as, as you know, friends of this show know, are not super inspired by Elizabeth Warren's brand of progressive ideology, but um, I think folks are looking for something in the middle and definitely somebody that's maybe one, two or three generations younger than certainly than Biden or, or than those two senators. So, Hannah, give us the gossip. Tell us some names that that have come up in your reporting. Yeah, so the tricky part of all of this is whenever I pose this question to progressives, uh, either people, you know, grassroots movement leaders, activists, lawmakers, 
uh, even some voters, there's always a question mark. It's always literally a head scratch of, <laughs> well, we really liked Sanders or we really liked Warren, but they're too old. So, you know, what about AOC or what about, and then after AOC, like you mentioned at the beginning of the segment, the names are kind of like blank. It's, 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 it's funny at this point, but that's not necessarily a bad thing. A lot of folks uh, think so when, when the names do kind of come out and are pulled out uh, from the list, we hear folks like uh, Rokana, who's number no, number one, I think, in terms of um, who's floated the most often. He's a, obviously a congressman from California. Doesn't have a ton of name recognition yet. Uh, did uh, co-chair Sanders' 2020 campaign, so he's known in those progressive circles, and he's very well liked um, on the left. And also within some pockets of sort of like I was mentioning, the Warren wing who's not necessarily as progressive, but still obviously liberal uh, and, and wants that ideology represented. So he's uh, top of mind for a lot of people. He's also, he, this goes without saying, but he's not white, um, which is a big ding in some folks' mind against Sanders and Warren and a lot of progressives um, who are looking for gender and uh, racial diversity in their, in their leader. Uh, another name that's floated not as often, but has been more in recent days is California Governor Gavin Newsom, uh, who is, as one person put it to me, you know, not hated by the left, which is always kind of, you know, a thing that has to be considered because there are all these, as you guys know, a lot of these ideological, these purity tests um, get floated. And so I, I, it was a little bit surprising to me covering this stuff day to day that, that Newsom isn't somebody that's reviled um, by by the progressive left, he is kind of. I think they're kind of sniffing him out. They're seeing does mm. he have uh, what it takes to be that movement leader? And he's certainly you know more nationally known than than Kata, even though they come from the same state. That's uh, that's very interesting and kind of surprising to me. Uh, yeah, Ro Representative Kana has been interviewed on our program uh, numerous times. I, I think is certainly uh, someone who has credibility with um, the with the left progressives who watch this show. Gavin Newsom, on the other hand, I, I don't know. Look, I associate him mostly with you know very intense pandemic restrictions. Um, I don't know that I, 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 there are cer certainly many uh, uh, progressives, leftists who support, um, you know, strict pandemic uh, restrictions. There are also some that that do not, who, you know, found thought, thought that they were some various mandates were tyrannical or went too far. Um, and, and also Gavin Newsom is, is known for, you know, uh, having those and then not himself following them. Um, I mean, California is a progressive state, so there's, you know, there has been certainly progressive legislation. Um, we, we, we talked yesterday about how he's turning California into like a sanctuary state for gender affirming care or something like that. So, so I see how, uh, particularly on maybe on social or cultural issues, he could be a progressive standard bearer. I, I, I would have to think, knowing from, you know, from talking to some of my co-hosts, my you know, progressive co-hosts, that on economic, on class-based grounds, it would surprise me if he's, uh, if he's, if he's enough for, uh, for what uh, Sanders and Warren-type people uh, want. And, and also the debate, the dis disagreement between Sanders and Warren people being, as far as I can tell, mostly about you know, how the campaigns went down and some sort of, sort of personal staffing acrimony and you know, Warren's perceived kind of betrayal or, or making it about, about her own gender and how you know, Sanders had allegedly said things to her about how a woman couldn't win or something mm -hmm. that he absolutely denies ever saying. So I don't know. That's a long way of saying that uh, 
I, I'm interested. I, I'm interested who you know who told you their view. I think Newsom. Were you talking about Gavin Newsom himself? He might. I, I would understand him saying, "Yes, progressives love me. I'm definitely going to be the choice of, of progressives." I don't know about anyone else. Yeah, if I yeah, could just I mean, jump in, Hannah, can you can you talk us through the policy? I think what Robbie's getting at is. What is the difference between the Sanders and the Warren p- camps from a policy point of view? And what are these people looking for in the next progressive standard bearer from a more like policy oriented p- point of view? Yeah, I know. That's a great that's a great way of putting it. I mean, I think that's that's where the key differences do come down for me, having followed you know the 2020 campaign and then now the lead up to 2024. It is it is a policy debate and it's a difference of ideology over economic issues versus the cultural issues it, it, in terms of the Sanders and Warren faction. That's what it boils down to. People can quibble about um, differences like Robbie was saying, strategy and what went down tactics tactics wise. But in terms of ideology, I mean, the the Sanders wing is looking for somebody to pick up the mantle like Kana, I think, is the closest person in this regard. Uh, to really hit the the nail on the head over these the economic uh, populist policies uh, in, in her, things wealth inequality obviously things like climate change tying it up tying those issues into racial racial justice issues is a big part of that movement and it's and it really stems down to just economics being number one nothing nothing else um, in in that worldview matters as much and and in in fact sort of informs the other broader cultural debates in, in that view. And I think that that's the leader that they want. It's very hard to find in the modern sort of democratic party that that Biden world is functioning in, that voters are functioning in this moderate kind of electorate. We're, we're looking at the Senate uh, and, and kind of assessing, is it possible to have an economic populist? I would argue the closest to that currently running is John Fetterman, who is you know doing quite well and making that case. So somebody like that, um, Mandela Barnes is doing that a little bit uh, too, although he's leaning in more towards the Warren wing of the cultural issues, um, yeah. you know, to make his case in Wisconsin. But uh, the other side of things are, you know, Robbie, like what you said about Gavin Newsom with the uh, sanctuary cities debate, the you know transgender equality debate. Those are more of the cultural social issues that, of course, are a big part of the progressive left. Some folks in the Warren camp, and even some folks in the in the Sanders camp, they want that to be represented as well but that's secondary it's 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 economic uh, populism as number one uh kana is is really trying to make that case early he's been you know doing a lot of the moves that any type of presidential aspirant would be making i i was catching up with him on the phone just a couple of weeks ago and i said it's, it's kind of loud in the background you know where, where are you and he goes oh i'm just hopping on a jet blue flight to new hampshire you know don't mind me and so i think like okay you know he's on his way to new right. hampshire i think that was the second trip uh, and so, you know, we, we keep tabs on these people just to kind of sense where their minds are. Um, but certainly a candidate on the left is going to be one. Anybody that that takes up that Sanders mantle and, and Warren mantle to a lesser extent uh, is going to have to be focused on on economic populism. Um, that's what I hear. That's what I hear from progressives. As The Onion once put it, area families trip to New Hampshire sparks rumors of presidential bid. Like that <laughs> right. One. And that's my home state. So I, <laughs> there you go. I'm, I'm headed there myself on, on Thursday. Uh-oh, uh-oh. <laughs> well, Hannah, thank you so much uh, for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thanks, guys. And stay tuned for more Rising right after this. Former President Donald Trump is suing CNN for defamation. 
The Don alleges defamation and is seeking $475 million in punitive damages. The 29-page lawsuit also alleges that CNN took part in a, quote, campaign of dissuasion in the form of libel and slander that, quote, escalated in recent months due to the fact that the network fears a Trump 2024 bid. The lawsuit specifically takes issue with CNN's use of the words racist and insurrectionist, as well as associations made between the former president and Adolf Hitler. CNN has not issued a statement on the lawsuit as of this morning. And I, he also objects to, I think, the term big lie, which obviously was used uh, repeatedly on CNN until its new, uh, I think its new president, Chris Licht, uh, said, famously said that he didn't think that terminology should necessarily be used anymore. I was on uh, Reliable Sources with our old friend Brian Stelter uh, when that came down, and uh, we discussed it a little bit. And I, I, th I think I remember saying that, you know, while the things Trump has said about the election are in fact false, I don't know that it's maybe the biggest lie of all time is probably, or in our in our recent political tradition, is probably that Iraq had weapons of mass destruction, right? In terms of how consequential and damaging a lie might be. Um, this lawsuit, however, I make, I, I give very little chances of succeeding uh, in any sense because the things Trump is describing are just opinion, are not, um, are not actionable because, you know, trying to dissuade people from voting for Donald Trump is not at all a crime. It's not libelous. It's not any of the things he's talking about. Uh, am, I, am I missing something here, Bacha? No, uh, my understanding of defamation is, first of all, like you said, if something is labeled opinion is clearly an opinion, right? Like that Trump is anything like Hitler. I mean, I think that's a pretty wrong opinion, pretty ignorant and silly opinion, but it's still an opinion. And um, to you know, for libel, you have to be able to prove that something is not only not true, but that the person thought it wasn't true when they said it. And it's pretty clear that people on CNN are pretty convinced that Trump is, you know, racist when they say it. So I think, you know, the 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 lawsuit, I agree with you. I don't know how much merit there is in this. I will say, like everything he says about them, what they have done, you know, that they are trying to dissuade people from voting him for him in the form of giving their opinions repeatedly that he is somebody akin to Hitler. That is all true and is really problematic. But the problem is that they believe it. The problem is not that they're sort of libeling him or defaming him. It's that they actually, that the people who are in charge of telling the great American story are so wrong in a way right. that's just so, so obvious to everybody but them. Right. Right. Whether it makes for good, uh, you know, political commentary or good journalism, totally different matter. Uh, I would argue in many cases it doesn't, but like you, but um, but calling someone names, you know, is just so obviously protected under the First Amendment. It, I think it's, it's it can be helpful to you know compare this to some of the other high-profile cases of alleged you know libel, defamation, etc. You know, think of like you know Nicholas Sandman, right, as the kid in the in the Covington um, uh, incident on the Lincoln Memorial steps, and his lawsuit alleges you know a factual uh, lawsuits against various media companies. He's alleging a something that was factual actually wrong that you know that the way they described him getting into the face and not letting the native american man pass walk past him like that was a that was a factual claim it wasn't just you know describe then describing him as glaring rather than staring well that was opinion that's a description that didn't part of it didn't matter but the fact that he he was described as having gotten in the way and physically prevented um, the, the Native American protester from getting past him, that was determined to be a factual assertion that was not correct. And then, you know, then it was 
they, they settled, I, I think, in, in all of these cases, so it was never actually weighed upon. But the strength of his case rested on that being a factual determination, not just opinion. Like, similarly, someone maybe like, you know, Kyle Rittenhouse can say, well, if they describe, you know, they said he shot some media outlets or some commentator said he shot uh, black people or, or, that, or that the people he shot had not, um, were not armed, you know, all of the, and I, I, you know, at least one of them, right, did have some kind of weapon and, and they, were, they were actually not black people. So those were factual assertions that, uh, that made it so that, per, you know, perhaps he could have uh, sought. So, but now, of course, if those were, right, if those were honest mistakes, that doesn't necessarily then make it liable. For a public person, for a, a person of some notoriety, which, uh, you know, Rittenhouse was by the time he, was he would be in a position to file a lawsuit, um, Sandman, I, I think, was actually judged to not be a public person because while this was all happening, he was just a random kid. Uh, but for, for a public person, the, yeah, the it's, it's not just somebody says something wrong, that doesn't mean you can sue them. It has to be, like, like you said, actual malice. There has to be, right, either they knew it was wrong or it was, so, it was so negligent, it was so obvious that they should have known it was wrong based on what, what a, like common journalist practice should have been. If you have those elements, then maybe you have um, a, a libel suit or defamation suit. You just, like, <laughs> obviously clearly don't have that, don't have that here. But, um, but uh, I, I don't yes, know, it, it's, as, yeah. I was going to say, as somebody who very closely followed the Johnny Depp Amber Heard trial, which I'm sure you did not, but I watched every, almost every minute of it really? that I could because it was so fascinating. Yes. So many people were saying beforehand, this is such a high bar to clear, um, you know, but he cleared it. You know, yeah. he did win because he was able to show malice. He was able to, sh to convince the jury that she had intentionally misrepresented him in this way on factual grounds. Um, like you said, I can't help but feel that the reason um, uh, former President Trump is doing this now. I don't, you know, obviously I have no basis for saying this except my, my own understanding of the political wins, but it does to me seem like he's a little bit um, getting upstaged by Ron DeSantis as enemy number one of CNN, and he wants to sort of put it back in voters' minds like, no, 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 I I'm the one who said they're enemy of the people. It's me. I'm their biggest <laughs> enemy, right? Yep. He wants to hear people on, you know, on Newsmax and on, you know, OAN saying like, oh, look, you know, CNN, they really hate him, right? They called him all these things. Remember, they really hate him, right? Because that has sort of become a real bargaining chip for Republican um, people see seeking office. I think that's 100% accurate, and uh, yeah, he's he's not been. Uh, he, he definitely wants to be in the spotlight, especially if he does actually intend to try to recapture um, the GOP nomination for president. Something that DeSantis might uh, have something to say about, but we will certainly see. Uh, looking forward to that and more rising coming up in just a minute. Well, a new poll from NBC News and Telemundo finds that Democrats' advantage with Latino voters has declined since previous election cycles. Over half of Latino voters say they want Democrats to control Congress after the 2024 elections versus 33 percent who want Republicans in charge. Democrats' 21-point Democratic lead in congressional preference is actually down from past NBC Telemundo polls of Latino voters, including a whopping 21 points since October 2012. Joining me now to weigh in is staff writer at The Hill, Rafael Bernal. Rafael, so great to see you. Hey, it's great to be on. 
So I think that difference from 2012 to now is so important as we talk about you know the shifting Latino vote because if you flash back to 2012, you know that's the the height of the Obama years, a time where Democrats and Democratic strategists were very confident that due to demographic change and immigration, they were headed toward the Democratic Party was headed toward some kind of permanent majority because of that strategy. Now we're ten years later, and that looks shakier than ever. And I, I wonder what you think is, is the big reason for that change. Well, if you, if you remove all nuance, which, as a warning, you should not ever do, but the big reason, if you do remove all nuance, you had in 2012 a U.S. president who was promising big changes on immigration, despite, yes, being the deporter-in-chief. You had Democrats on one side on immigration, Republicans on the other side. On top of that, let's start adding some layers of nuance. You had an economic uh, economic policy where Democrats were known as the party of the working class. Uh, still, a very large segment of Latino voters were and are working class. You you did you had um, sort of the these these startups of of what eventually became Donald Trump's immigration policy that at the time sounded really racist, maybe. Maybe they, some argue they should still sound racist today, but they don't. They're very mainstream today. And, and you had, and crucially, you had fewer Latinos voting. Right back then and up until 2018, when that sort of changed, the big question among Latino politics and, and Latino uh, campaign um, consultants was how do we get people out to the polls? People are not participating. People are not registering, crucially. That has somewhat changed and, and in, in both directions. More people want to register, but also many states have made it harder for people to register. So people who aren't participating are sort of completely edged out of the electoral landscape. Hmm. I think there are a lot of presumptions made about Latino voters, uh, presumptions the Democratic Party has made, or maybe not even, it, it might not actually even be fair to say the Democratic Party, but some of the thought leaders who get, who become representative of it in, in elite institutions of higher education, on social media, et cetera, you know, the kind of pundits, and you see this on, uh, on, other, on other news channels, cable news channels um, that are progressive or mainstream. I have seen, for instance, you know, the, uh, the, uh, the uh, the 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 uh, gender neutral uh, uh, sort of language applied to Latino voters the the Latin X sort of thing you know it's is that a huge issue motivating a ton of voters I suspect not but I think it might may be indicative of a kind of uh, uh, misunderstanding of 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 what the cultural priorities or, or how far left your average Latino voter might be I don't think it is nearly as far as uh, as, as people who are speaking to their issues or get purport to represent them on TV, and that maybe that disconnect has negatively affected democratic outreach to the community. There's a lot of um, caricature, caricature of cultural competency. I would say that you're you're right that you know uh, I, I saw a video yesterday where um, where a guy was dressed in in you know big sombrero and a, and, a, and a shawl and all that and asked a bunch of people at a at a college campus whether that was offensive they all said yes and then went to a latino neighborhood and asked what, whether it was offensive and most people kind of just laughed at him and went no not really so th there's a yeah, lot of it's a that. great example 
And it's it's a lot of misunderstanding how many Latinos, especially recent arrivals, because let's remember that second or third generation will have a lot more of the um, will will see this in the same through the same lens as a majority of Americans, and might actually say like, yeah, that's that's culturally incompetent. You're you're appropriating. That's bad. But the, the more recent arrivals. It's more about it's more about jobs, and you see it you see it in in every in every poll. Like the economy has consistently been number one, with with Latinos number two and number three are always healthcare and education. The environment is up there. And one warning, everybody, most of these pundits you're talking about, left and right, they love to say, see, immigration is no longer an issue for Latinos. Latinos don't care about immigration. It's number five or less. I think what one part of what they're missing is that Latinos have proven and, and really proven to be very strong issues voters. And as, it, as issues voters, they know immigration reform is not in, in the cards. So I don't think a Latino voter who's even relatively well-informed is going to say immigration is their number one priority because they're voting for things that they can get. They can get a candidate who represents them better on the economy. They can get a, a candidate who prioritizes education or healthcare. They are very unlikely to get a candidate who will you know, untie the knot mm -hmm. on immigration reform. Well, let's talk a little bit about that. what the Republican Party is maybe doing. Is there awareness, enough awareness in the party that, hey, we, if we do outreach to these voters, we're doing better with them by default. Maybe we should concentrate more of our efforts here. We could be even more successful with them. Yeah, talk about how you know, the Biden economy is affecting Latino voters, maybe making them harder to get jobs, maybe the food, uh, price of food and gas, et cetera, is you know, outside the bound. Talk about those things specifically to Latino communities, are Republicans doing that or are they still in the kind of previous mindset of, you know, we, we, we have law, we don't have immigrant voters, minority voters, they don't support us, so we're not going to speak to them and we would actually try to keep as many of them out of the country as we possibly could because they're not our voters. Uh, a, a thinking that is so outdated and so wrong, but is that sinking in with the Republican Party? So Republicans are doing a couple things really, really well. The, the first one is, is they noticed that Democrats are doing a bad job at reaching out to the voters that, that they should have an easy, easy time convincing of voting for Democrats. Basically, why were Latinos not voting when Latinos were overwhelmingly Democratic? They still are overwhelmingly Democratic, but even more so. They weren't voting because nobody was reaching out to them. Mm. Campaigns weren't spending a cent on them. And Republicans... You know, it, it took them a couple decades to realize this, but now that they've realized it, they're putting real money and real investment where Democrats haven't historically, where Democrats have, you know, taken Latinos for granted. It sounds like a platitude, but it's kind of true. Um, so th they're doing that very well, and then they're they're moving moving issues toward them. But it's, I, I think it's an exaggeration when they say that you know the old the old Reagan phrase that Hispanics are are uh, Republicans they just or conservatives they just don't know it yet. Uh, that that's probably an exaggeration for a majority of Latinos. As it might be true for some, especially especially evangelical Latinos. But they're they're making mm -hmm. they're sort of molding issues. They're molding so immigration and the border are no longer about let's keep them out. It's about look at this chaos. Let's make our communities safer. Um, that's that's a very good spin. It I mean, the, it's lost on few people who are paying attention 
that Republicans are still calling for building a wall, which basically says everything on that side of the wall is rotten. Not the best message to send to somebody who just came over from Mexico, but maybe, yeah, maybe somebody who, who doesn't want to, who really fled Mexico, doesn't want to know about their home country anymore. Maybe that is a good message. And they're really chipping away at the sides. And re uh, Republicans are very keenly aware of one more thing that's crucially important. They don't need to get to 40 or 45 percent with Latinos, and they most likely will not because for, well, for a variety of reasons we've discussed. But if they get to a consistent 35, then they've chipped away at, at, that, at the advantage that Democrats have, especially in key races in places like Georgia and places like Arizona. And even, you don't think about it much with Latinos, but they're very important in Wisconsin and Pennsylvania. Mm -hmm. Well, the trajectory is so favorable for Republicans, and I think if they keep talking to Latinos or to do more of it um, on issues like, yeah, the economy and crime, probably another big one, um, they would make just tremendous strides there. And like you said, you know, you don't have to, you don't have to win them all. You don't have to win the majority, but doing just doing a lot better than they were doing could really totally change um, the electoral map for midterms, for the next election cycle, et cetera. Uh, Rafael Bernal, thank you so much for joining us today. Pleasure to be on. And we'll have more Rising right after this. We have brand new polling numbers for you today. A recent News Nation and Decision Desk HQ poll found that nearly 54% of voters disapprove of Joe Biden's handling of his role as president. Meanwhile, 60% of Republican voters think Trump should be the party's presidential nominee, while 84% of Dems do not want his name on the ballot at all. The poll also found that more than 47% of voters feel financially worse off than they were last year. Advisor at Deci Decision Desk HQ, Scott Tranter, joins now to weigh in on these findings. Thanks for joining us. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so I, I see these numbers, and I think it's confirming a lot of, you know, what we already have a general sense of, that people are frustrated with the direction of the country, the economy in particular, and many Republicans still want Donald Trump, whereas for Democrats, that would be like a fate worse than death. Um, what, what other, you know, themes emerge from this kind of poll, polling? Well, I think the theme here is consistency. Since News Nation has been tracking this since uh, February of this year, um, inflation, economy, gas prices, and as you see with this most recent one, 47% of Americans think that they're, um, they're worse off financially. That seems to be the underlying consistent theme going back six, eight months. And we've had a lot of other things we've been pulling on, but that has been, these economic issues have been consistent, and now we're 30 days out from the election. And so I think that's going to be the biggest one motivating voters going into the fall. Not the only issue, but the biggest issue. I want to get your sense of where things are headed, given the fluctuations we've seen. You know, obviously, for, for many months, the story was expecting a very favorable climate for Republicans, uh, you know, retaking um, uh, the Senate, perhaps, uh, the House, almost certainly. Then you had the Dobbs decision. Maybe the economy approved somewhat. And I think the weaknesses of specific Republican candidates um, very recently in Georgia and then other places as well became more evident. And the, the situation got much brighter for Democrats. Is that holding true? Because now I've seen some polling suggest that it, it, the Republicans might have a better night now than they're expected to have. It goes so back and forth. And what are we supposed to do but prognosticate and, you know, wait until the night of? But where is your sense of things now? Yeah. So, no, if you would have asked all the, the quote unquote experts six months ago, they would have they would have predicted a Republican House and a Republican Senate. 
here we are less than 30 days or roughly 30 days out. And, you know, Decision Desk HQ projects about a 75, 76% chance Republicans take the House, but about a 65% chance the Democrats keep the Senate. Hmm. That would be historically unpre- unprecedented in, a, in, in many cycles. And sure, it's happened before, but not any time recently hmm. where, um, where this has happened after a, a brand new president has been elected, where that, the House, is, House and Senate is split like that. So I think these things are, um, how do I put it? It's surprising now, and as you pointed out, the the polling has looked better for Republicans, but voting has already started in places like North Carolina. It's about to start in Georgia and Florida, and the polling needs to get a little bit better in those places for the Republicans to actually come back and and look favored in the Senate. Um, This is a long way to say there's still a lot of voting to come. There's still a lot of voting to happen, and there's some more polling to happen, but we are getting down to the wire for some of these things to turn around. Well, there are some more findings on key issues from that poll that I wanted to quickly get your reaction to. Roughly 65% of voters very concerned about inflation. 65% see it as a bigger problem facing the U.S. actually even than unemployment, COVID, or crime, which really does put in perspective that, you know, it's the economy stupid, right? That's that's the old yep. the old thinking, the going back to the Clinton era, and it's borne out uh, once again, right? Yep. No, no, no. And that's been consistent as long as News Nation's been tracking this um, pretty much all year and inflation has been over 50 percent, which is relatively hard to get on issues and certainly consistently. And if it makes sense, look, when gas prices go up the way they are, when hotel prices are up the way they are, when, you know, cars and homes and all those types of things that affects people every day, um, certainly more than 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 some other issues. And these things haven't changed. And they look to their government. They look to their local officials. They look to the president. If the president stands, stands up and says, I'm going to pass an Inflation Reduction Act, they look at him and say, OK, well, he's doing something. But am I seeing it at the gas pump? And so, you know, these types of things are, are top of mind. And and um, my guess is they're probably going to uh, be a be a topic in 2024 cycle as well. I mean, these these issues are pretty salient. And and these people feel pretty strongly about it, both in the polling we see as well as the focus groups. Well, the poll also found that about 35 percent think U.S. policies that incentivize illegal immigration over illegal entry, over, over legal entry, rather, are the most responsible uh, factors causing an increase in illegal immigration. And 26 percent believed that building a wall along the U.S. southern border would help the most to deter illegal immigration to the U.S. if it were put in place, which is not also not surprising you know, that Donald Trump really catapulted himself to the front of the pack in 2016 by by standing out on the wall issue. That was I, I know there are conservative pundits like Ann Coulter and other people got behind Trump uh, because he was the one strongest on that very pivotal issue that resonated then with, you know, with a very conservative base. So are, are we seeing that again, that a Republican figure would certainly distinguish themselves by concentrating specifically on the wall, which is a, you know, it's an easy proposal. So one sentence proposal, we should build a wall on the southern border. It doesn't get into, you know, the more confusing or complicated aspects of our migration policy or our asylum policy or people overstaying their visas. Nope, just build a wall. It's not high enough. Build it a little higher. Um, that's, uh, that's what Republicans should run on, I, I would take from looking at that poll. What say you? Yeah, no, it's it's an easy message to sell, you know, build that wall. And I think that 26 percent, it's probably a little bit lower than had we, we done it a couple of years ago. I should have looked at the polling ahead of time. But, um, you know, that's pretty solid. 25, 30 percent of the, of the electorate. That's a pretty easy issue to go on. And I would imagine if we dug a little bit deeper and we asked those people, the 35 percent who said, OK, de-incentivize, 
it's not a build a wall and don't do the other. It's okay. Well, let's, let's do some, do some of the poly stuff, but also build a wall. Right. And so I, I think the, the, the wall issue is that's why you see Republicans, especially in some Southern states or in some relatively um, competitive primaries on in border states and things like that, say it because there is a solid 25 mm-hmm. to 30% of the, um, the electorate who is going to um, donate on that. They're going to be activists on that and they're going to vote on that. Do we have polling to indicate what the mate, what the modern, what, what the, with the democratic uh, consensus position is on doing something about immigration? Because you hear so much in the media from people who are probably much further to the left in, in the Democratic coalition on immigration, I suspect, than your actual Democratic voters. Do we know where their sentiments lie on this issue? Yeah, when, you know, there's some good public polling out by Pew and Gallup. You know, the Democrats overwhelmingly, and it all depends on how you ask the question, between 60 and 70 percent think the immigration issue should be solved. And it, and and to be honest, if you ask Republicans and Democrats, more than 50 percent of them think it should be solved. Where they disagree is how it should be solved. Right. It goes back to the 2008 uh, attempt where it was path to citizenship is we're going to build a wall. We'll give them a path to citizenship that didn't exactly pass. But that that had slight bipartisan support. Um, but the reason why it was only slight is because people were like, well, let's build a wall first and then let's do the policy stuff. And some people were like, well, let's do the policy stuff and then the wall next. And so I think that's where it splits. Republicans mm. and Democrats, both the polling shows both want to do it. They differ on how they want to get it done. Right. It's another example of, you know, more extreme voices getting in the way where you could get you know, most people in the country, you could get them to support some kind of additional border security and then a process for yeah. making it easier for legal immigration. You'd have less illegal immigration. Everyone would be happy. Only the extremes standing in the way of it. Scott, uh, thank you so much for joining us today. We'll let you get out of the rain. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks for having me. We'll be back with more Rising in just a minute. Swedish investigators' early findings into the Nord Stream pipeline explosions have only, quote, strengthened the suspicions of gross sabotage. Investigators say evidence of detonations were found. However, a suspect has not yet been identified. Meanwhile, Russian officials have claimed they were informed through diplomatic channels that there are no plans to include Moscow in the investigation. Hmm. All right. So obviously there have been a lot of people speculating over the course of the last week or so about who's responsible. And to the extent that there is evidence that indicates things one way or another, the Occam's razor of it all does seem to point in the direction of the U.S. What do you make of this? I don't think that. I think the Occam's razor points to Russia. Why is that? Um, I, look, I know I, I, make, I have no illusions about the things the U.S. has done to interfere illicitly in other countries. We have a long history of that. Absolutely. It would be, I'm not saying it's impossible. I, 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 I don't think it's a conspiracy theory. Mm-hmm. I absolutely understand why people think it mm-hmm. might be the U.S. I think it, I think it might be the U.S. Mm-hmm. I, I have listened to what our officials have said that would give every indication that could be. And yes, we have sounded happy to capitalize on this, this setback for the Russia to Germany energy project. That said, I think it would be nuts if we blew up their pipeline, our ally, Germany, that would be an act of sabotage that I would, at this stage of geopolitics, put past what, U.S. Why? Officials. What's Germany going to do? What are any of them? The, the, the whole point of the you know, yeah, unipolar it's state, nearly an act of American war. hegemony, is that nobody 
can really do anything to us, and so we act with impunity all across the globe. Is right. what's we so do incredible. That, we do that in Latin America. We do that in Middle East. We but do it's do incredible. To Germany. Okay, so that's is my point. That what's incredible to you is that we might do it. Yes. To a European power, yes. like a, a big global power, yes. as opposed to yep. I don't know Venezuela, yes. Cuba, that is exactly or even Russia, another global power. I might oh, add. Okay, but so doing this is wild, okay, and, and we all are agreeing this was an act of deliberate sabotage. Mm -hmm, that's that's what everybody says. seems to be saying. For anyone to have done this is pretty out there, outside the bounds of like what makes sense for state actors to do. Um, the state actor on the global in the world, in, in the stage right now that is doing things that are outside the bounds of like rational what should be done is Russia. Um, it, this is very much in keeping with Putin's sudden decision to have this annexation referendum in uh, in Ukraine, like in the midst of the a war that is suddenly going bad for him. It's it's shaking it's shaking the table a little bit. It's overthrowing the chessboard. Um, does it make a lot of sense for them? No, but that they are the actor who are doing things that don't totally make sense. Right okay, now. so what do you make then of this famous clip that's now circulated all over the place of uh, Joe Biden giving this speech, standing next to I don't remember what Russian, uh, what German official rather, whether it was the PM or, or who was it, but standing next to some high-ranking German diplomatic official and saying, you know, there are ways, there are ways to stop the pipeline if it comes to that. There are ways. There will be, uh, we there will be no longer. Nord Stream 2. We we will bring an end to it. What do, what how will you how will you do that exactly since the project and control of the project is within Germany's control? We will uh, I promise you we'll be able to do it. The, there's also this Condoleezza Rice clip that people were circulating it's talking suspicious. about the strategic necessity of, of disrupting oil flow from Russia. All of this evidence, there was the uh, the Polish politician who's married to an American, what, State Department official, who tweeted out immediately after the sabotage, yeah. the, 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 the bombing, the, the disruption was announced. Thank you, USA. All of that you think is coincidence? I mean, there, again, there's no obvious explanation for why this occurred. There's yeah. no, like, oh, that's what it's got to be. So I'm just trying to look like who is doing things that may this would be I'm not, I, I'm not putting it past this. I'm not saying it can't be us. Yeah. Um, it would still be pretty wild. Look, I appreciate your skepticism. I, I had questions, too. So I asked a Gray Zone journalist and frequent guest of Rising, Aaron Mate, about these theories on uh, today's episode of Bad Faith Podcast, actually. And uh, let's run a clip that shows the evidence and how it pans out in his view. If you look at the map of where the explosions were, they're they're a few hundred miles away at least from russia they're not on the russian area of the pipeline uh they're near the waters of denmark and it's a lot harder for russian uh naval operatives to access the waters of denmark off of denmark than it is to access the waters off of russia so that's that's a great that's a great point yeah they invested billions of dollars in this and uh this is a very lucrative project for russia and also a, a project that would i think you know help russia and that it, again, if they have closer ties via energy to the rest of Europe, it makes it more difficult to impose sanctions on Russia and mm -hmm. to engage in conflict with Russia. So why Russia would want to blow up uh, this for, this pipeline, which previously was recognized as, as its main form of leverage, makes no sense, especially when everybody knows that Germany has always had cold feet about this Ukraine proxy war. All right. So what do you make of okay, that? So I appreciate Aaron's perspective. 
Love the guy. We've had him on the guest, uh, had him on the show a lot. But so Putin's interest and Russia's interests are not necessarily the same thing. Yes, of course it's better for Russia to be part of the European community and to transport gas via vis-a-vis this pipeline to Germany. But he, he, he's saying, like, you know, Russia, it would be better for Russia if they had, like, closer relations to their, to European, other, other European powers, and this pipeline was supposed to help facilitate that. Yeah, but you know what else, like, put their reputation with the rest of Europe in danger? When they freaking invaded Ukraine. And, but, and by they, I mean Vladimir Putin. So yeah, you that, can't just say, like, well, yeah, if they were doing things that made sense, they wouldn't have, they wouldn't have done that. Well, if they're doing things that made sense, they wouldn't have... They wouldn't be losing a war against Ukraine that is isolating the rest of Europe so from them. The, the whole point is, and this is the same conversation we just had with respect to OPEC and Saudi Arabia. The whole point is that there are oftentimes there are very bad people who do things that we don't agree with from an ethical perspective, but we kowtow and we do business with them because at the end of the yeah. day, oil is king. The same situation is the same situation for Germany. And the reason why Biden made those statements back in January or whatever it was before the conflict started, when he acknowledged the strategic implications of Nord Stream 2 and standing next to a German official said, there are ways, you know, the question basically, if I recall it correctly, pointed out that it is in Germany's interest to be able to access this pipeline. It is in Germany's interest and Europe's interest to be able to have more access to fuel, especially heading into winter when fuel costs yeah. are high. We talked a couple of weeks ago about how uh, Liz Truss and, and Britain have a cap on uh, oil costs because they understand what a political uh, bomb it is for people in their country to have to pay these incredibly high gas prices as a consequence of this ongoing conflict in Ukraine. And we have had reporting after reporting after reporting about how much this conflict was instigated at the hand of U.S. State Department officials and not necessarily something that the allies in Europe necessarily want to be a part of. It's not necessarily as geopolitically strategic for them to do the same thing. So that for all of those reasons, I don't understand why it's clearly it could clearly be the case that Germany is being strong armed by the United States into you know, ideologically, yes, no one wants the invasion of Russia. But at the end of the day, just like we keep doing business with uh, Saudi Arabia, despite them killing American journalists and, and instigating a war in Yemen and causing famine and, and destruction, they would happily continue doing, or not happily, but grudgingly continue doing uh, business with Russia because otherwise their people freeze to death or have to pay sky high oil prices. It's the same thing. I know, but right, I, I'm not saying that's impossible. That is perfectly plausible. But then we get it. I, I just don't want to ever get into this weird place where we're like, yeah, the U.S. is doing all these nefarious things. They're so bad, which is true. But like, that is true of so many governments. And and there's the government. There's the state actor. There's the actual political figure. And there's what the state apparatus wants. And there's what the actual people want. And these are these are different interests. Uh, governments do. We are not alone in doing dumb, counterproductive, destructive sure, violence. Sure, as Trump said, and there's a lot of murderers right, everywhere. Right. <laughs> So I'm, I'm saying we should probably look with some suspicion. There should probably be a cloud of nefarious intent on the nation that's invading the other nation right now. Look, it's completely possible that it's a false flag that Russia, you know, went to the other end of the pipeline to yeah, blow up. Yeah, right. Of course they're going to blow. Like, all of that is possible. But it's also true, you know, if you watch the full clip and you listen to the full episode, there's a discussion of, you know, uh, the American, American military testing charges or NATO troops testing charges in the water nearby where the explosion happened. Uh, around the time of the explosion happening. There's just so much evidence that is out there that casts suspicion on the United States. And for the United States not to have addressed any of that, despite there being so much news coverage over all of these moments that really come off as admissions from Condoleezza Rice, from Joe Biden himself, from 
you know, all of these, the, all these figures who would be in the know. I, it's, it's telling at the very least that they don't seem to feel the need to address that level of discourse or well, even make a, a denial. Even totally make a denial. Like, you know, I, I don't know. I, I, we'll continue to following it. Obviously, I don't know what happened. You don't know what happened. Nope. The Swedish Just investigators don't know what happened, except for that we know it was sabotage and not an oopsie-daisy. Not an oopsie-daisy. <laughs> Mr. Colonel Mustard in the uh, conservatory <laughs> with the candlestick, mm -hmm. with, the, uh, with the submarine, <laughs> the submarine <laughs> torpedoes. <laughs> All right, more rising uh, right after this. Stay with us. Welcome to the debrief. Let's get right to it. Tensions are flaring between Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell and Senator Lisa Murkowski. According to an excerpt from a new book, Bob Cusack, Hill Editor-in-Chief, welcome and tell us more about this story. Well, Robbie, fascinating story. It looks like a very good book and a behind-the-scenes account of the first impeachment. Yes. Uh, Which we have to refresh everyone right, for that. Right, that, exactly. was, uh, that was about uh, Ukraine, corruption, <laughs> right. etc. That was the one that, that Romney was the only Republican yes. to vote for. So uh, Murkowski did not. But she was, she was upset with how Mitch McConnell was handling it because Mitch McConnell was saying, I'm coordinating with the White House. Uh, she didn't like that and she criticized him publicly. Now, Mitch McConnell has constantly says, listen, I need Republicans. I can't get mad at him. Well, he got mad at her, according to this book, for, for criticizing him publicly. Uh, and it led to some tension, but then they made up later on. But it really is a fascinating uh, look at the relationships. And as you know, Robbie, relationships mean everything. Now, apparently, the relationship is repaired, but it was pretty tense back then. And now the relationship between Trump and McConnell is very bad, right. uh, which is interesting given how, right, in that first impeachment, if we recall, and in my understanding, part of the reason Murkowski was upset was that it was kind of, you know, set the agenda by McConnell that we're going to be all on the same team here, that's and that's right. not really what Murkowski wanted. Yeah, Murkowski saw it more as, hey, this is a jury. Let's not try to uh, prejudge. But, but she was upset. At the same time, who is supporting uh, her reelection very strongly right now with money? Mitch McConnell. Mitch McConnell. Yep. Because he is a... And Trump, of course... Is not right. Right. Didn't right, he? Right. Didn't Trump made some funny statement about Murkowski? If I recall, that was like, "Well, I will support her if X, Y, Z conditions are met." Or <laughs> is something. that right? I yeah, think that's what he it says was. so much; it's hard to keep track of. Right. <laughs> uh, but McConnell, an institutionalist. I mean, most by some definition, probably the most important Republican official there is, or has like unprecedented amounts of of power yep. for congressional Republicans, and his agenda has been always advance the Republican Party's interests, yep. put Supreme Court justices who will enact some of these long-running uh, uh, decisions that they, conservatives have wanted to put into practice on abortion and other fronts for a long time. Uh, and, and he views, like, so he doesn't want to get into it with Trump because right. he knows Not that's bad for Republicans. Right. Um, but, but it is interesting to look back at all he has done to keep the party uh, together, yep. especially that first impeachment versus the second one, where there was just no way to avoid ha letting some Republicans criticize Trump quite sharply, and right. that's what caused the break. Right, and that's why uh, Trump and McConnell don't get along, and they don't get along, uh, I think, going forward, no matter what happens. And McConnell does have a lot of power. Trump wants to replace him, of course, in the Senate as the top Republican, but that's not going to happen. But McConnell's power has been curbed by Trump. If Trump were to use some of his coffers, the, the, the money he raises from everything he's doing, and to share that wealth with these candidates the way McConnell does, because they all have to ask, they, they can't be too mean to McConnell, because right. they're reliant on his super PAC. Right, right. Now, Trump is one to endorse, but not really to spend a lot of money. Right. <laughs> he wants to keep that money, of course. He'll come to Why? your campaign event, he'll talk mostly about himself, but he'll say some nice things it, about he you. He wants to save that for himself in 2024. I guess so. 
Uh, well, this year, the midterms are expected to shape the 2024 election. Uh, so, Bob, the Hill is taking a look at some of the key races. What's on your radar? Yeah, well, Robbie, this is interesting because you have a number of Republicans who are eyeing national office in 2024, but they have to get beyond 2022. And that includes, of course, Governor DeSantis in Florida. He has a reelection. He's expected to win, but he wants to win by more than Trump won Florida in the last election. So he wants to win, not just win, but win big. So win by more than three points. That's going to be very important. And, and, and of course, there's a lot riding for, for Trump and Rick Scott and, of course, Biden and Harris, because after the election, some people, based on the results, their stock has gone up and some will have gone down. Why don't you elaborate on, on Rick Scott and why yes. that matters? I think that's something that probably a lot of people have not picked up on. Yeah, Rick Scott is head of the Senate Republican right. campaign arm. He came out with an agenda there, that was not uh, well received uh, by some Republicans, including Mitch McConnell. Rick Scott is certainly thinking about running for president down the road, maybe in 2024. So if, if Republicans fall short of winning the Senate, Rick Scott's stock has gone down. But if they do win it, his stock is way up. It's been my imp impression thus far that we're looking at it's Trump or it's DeSantis. Yeah. Obviously, there are other names. There are other Republicans, a lot of them, who want to be president. People like um, Josh Hawley and uh, and Ted, maybe Ted Cruz again. Marco Rubio, Marco maybe. Marco Rubio. Yeah. And yeah. then other governors. Greg Abbott has some aspirations. Yeah. The Texas governor is making making some waves on uh, on social media policy, censorship, those some uh, 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 trans issues, gender issues, kind of the conservative red the stuff that's really firing up the base. Right. Um, obviously, not getting quite as as much attention as DeSantis. Is it really, is it the case? It seems to me that it's almost a race for, for who would be the VP pick if DeSantis overcomes Trump. Yeah, right now, those two, I think, are the clear leaders. Yeah. Uh, there, there, I think there's going to be some jostling for that, you know, because Trump and DeSantis at some point, I think, are both going to run, and they're both going to go at each other. And maybe they hurt each other. And then one of these other candidates mm -hmm. maybe can slide into third place. But, but you're right. Right now, it's Trump versus DeSantis, and the tension between the two men is only growing. Uh, so someone else in that article you're referencing about how who matters in these midterms and how it's going to shape them is Christy Nome, yeah. uh, another governor. Um, I, I think seen as a, a very strong VP contender, yes. really for for Trump or DeSantis. Yes. Probably. Oh, I think she's a leading contender for for VP. And, and sh as you mentioned, she could run for president. She has a reelection uh, this fall. She's going to easily win in that red state. But watch Christy Nome, former House member, governor now bright future in the Republican and Party. big on uh, COVID restrictions. Yes. I, I think more, obviously, many Republican figures, including DeSantis, you know, made a name for themselves being against uh, certain pandemic restrictions in their own states, mandates federally, nationally, et cetera. I, I think she almost more even so than anyone else really was about, uh, about you know, the, the uh, attacks on individual freedom and the business community and lockdowns and those kinds of things. And that resonates, as you know, with the Republican Party, yeah. but especially Trump. And I would say it's so early, uh, so much way, uh, time to, to go and candidates to get in. But I think that Noam, we know that Trump is not going to, if he wins the nomination, he's not going to pick Pence, right? That, that's, off, that's off the table. Not, yeah. I think Noam is actually the leading contender. That's interesting. I, I can absolutely see that. Um, will Trump, Will his star fall a little bit if, if so many of these candidates that he had a large role in, in making in the primary, uh, causing them to be the Republican contender? Yep. This is true in Arizona. Blake Masters yep. is someone very close to him. Um, J.D. Vance in Ohio. Uh, Herschel Walker in Georgia. Dr. Oz in Pennsylvania. 
Uh, several of these races, most people, myself included, I think you in included, yeah. expect to not go uh, the, the GOP's way, but be very close. Yes. So is, is Trump going to face renewed uh, criticism from Republican conservative commentators on Fox, in the media, and other places when Dr. Oz comes up just short, if, if, if Dr. Comes Oz short, comes yeah. up just short and Herschel Walker comes up just short and uh, Blake Masters comes up just short. Yes, but with a caveat, you know Trump is not going to say it's my fault, right? No. <laughs> it's going to say it's Rick Scott's fault. It's Mitch McConnell's fault. And we're already seeing kind of the, the, the fingers pointing already, and that's a bad sign for the GOP. But yes, I think if the Republicans don't win the Senate, Trump will be blaming others, but he'll be taking some of the blame as well. Mm. Santis could come out looking... Better and better. Maybe. He's certainly closing the gap. Very interesting. Thank you so much, Bob. Thanks, Robbie. And thanks for watching.